The court, la cour. Good morning. In the matter of His Majesty the King and David Edward Fury. Arnold Hussey, KC, for the appellant, His Majesty the King. And Jason Edwards, for the respondent, David Edward Fury. Go ahead, Mr. Hussey. Um, thank you, and good morning, Justices. Uh, this appeal addresses whether or not the trial judge erred in admitting hearsay evidence, which was a video recorded statement of one of the complainants who had died before the trial. It is the Crown's submission that the majority erred in concluding that the trial judge applied and relied upon in an erroneous statement of the law in admitting into evidence the out-of-court statement, and that the dissenting reasons of Justice Knickel was the correct approach. On the basis of her analysis and reasoning, there was no error committed by the trial judge in admitting the hearsay statement into evidence. The concern of the inability to test the hearsay evidence was overcome in this case and thus justifying its admission. The majority of the Court of Appeal had no issue with the facts that were relied upon by the trial judge that went into the trial judge's analysis in her assessment of the hearsay dangers in the admission of the deceased statement and the effective safeguards which assisted in overcoming those dangers. As noted in your vague and referenced by Justice Knickel in her dissent at paragraph 63, deference is to be accorded to the trial judge in those factual findings. And absent any error of law, deference is also to be accorded to the trial judge in the determination of threshold reliability, which at this stage is on a balance of probabilities. The majority of the Court of Appeal also had no issue for the most part with the legal principles enunciated by the trial judge and which were applied by her in her detailed assessment of the statement and the surrounding circumstances. Uh, the error that was identified in the words of Justice Welch was that the case law did not support the statement by the trial judge when she stated at the conclusion of her deci decision that I am mindful of the final note put forward by Pacheco and Stuzer that in situations such as the instant where necessity is high, less reliability is required, and further that any deficits are offset by the high degree of necessity. In support of this position, the Court of Appeal referenced paragraph 72 of Baldry, where the court stated that if reliability of the evidence is sufficiently established, the necessity requirement can be relaxed. The Baldry case, Justice Welsh, concludes, did not stand for the proposition that the opposite was true, i.e., that where the, exhibit, uh, where the evidence exhibits high necessity, then less reliability may be required. One might perhaps question at, at this particular point in time uh, the use and reliance on the term relaxed as uh, perhaps a, uh, based on our submissions and, though, and the reasoning of Justice Knickel that the term flexibility might better convey the intent of the court which lies behind the principled approach to hearsay evidence. Justice Welsh underscores her analysis by referring at paragraph 9 to the statement by the court in Bradshaw where she quotes, quotes, 
That said, the threshold reliability standard always remains high. The statement must be sufficiently reliable to overcome specific hearsay dangers it presents. And the appellant takes no issue with the fact that threshold reliability always remains high and that on a balance of probabilities, the evidence must be such to overcome the dangers inherent in the admission of such evidence. The court would note, or the Crown would note, however, that the statement being referred to by Justice Welsh was spe specifically in reference to the criteria of procedural and substantive reliability and not the criteria, criteria of necessity and reliability. Though I would note that in Bradshaw, the court does state that the two approaches to threshold reliability, i.e. procedural and substantive, that they do work in tandem and are not mutually exclusive of one, of one another and that one factor can uh, influence or complement the other. However, the court in Baldry at paragraph 72 also... But, but may I ask you here, the, uh, the in tandem comment, that's not um, a counterweight relationship, is it? where if, if, if you have high necessity, you get to go below the high threshold of reliability. That's not what the in tandem con comment ever was intended to, to deal with, was it? No, no I, I agree. And, and what do you say the in tandem comment uh, re relates to? Pardon me, Justice? I just wonder what reading, if any, that you give to what the proper um, um, interpretation of in tandem means in this context as between necessity and reliability. I, I guess in the sense of working together um, and that there has to be some flexibility or that there is flexibility in, in that exists between the two criteria, that obviously if necessity is very high, um, there, there may be some uh, relaxation, relaxation of reliability. Where, where, have we, where have we said that in the case law? I, it, I mean, it, aside from this tandem comment, I mean, for example, I mean, if you look at that at paragraph 72 of Baldry, Justice Fish says that they work in tandem, but he cites to Kellowan, he cites to KGB, he cites to UFJ. What exactly does this stand for? Why is he referring to those cases in particular? Does that help us understand what he meant by tandem? I, I, I guess when you look at the, the, the case law, the, they're looking at these two criteria as working together insofar as reaching a particular conclusion insofar as the actual admissibility of the evidence is concerned. Can I, can I just say, though, that, um, I mean, obviously it's been referred to where reliability is high, then necessity can, can be um, less compelling. But the reference to in tandem, certainly in Bradshaw, related to the different ways in which reliability can be established, whether it was through procedural means or whether substantive. So I'm just wondering if really what we're talking about is different ways of describing how you meet the concerns that are raised by hearsay. What are the various ways in which the reliability of the statement can be tested, notwithstanding um, the absence of the opportunity to cross-examine? 
In, in the situation with respect to the reliability of the statement, um, the, the, the two criteria are procedural and substantive. I mean, you, you look at the, um, uh, the factors that come into play insofar as whether or not the inherent um, uh, untrustworthiness of the, the statement, uh, whether, whether or not there are circumstantial guarantees that can be uh, um, gleaned from, from the evidence and the circumstances surrounding the statement as to whether or not that, that statement is reliable. Um, and those are the two cri criteria insofar as reliability is concerned. But between necessity and reliability, there seems to be, uh, I would suggest, um, some flexibility in the sense that we're, you know, once if necessity is, is deemed to be rather high, then the factors that go into the reliability aspect of it don't lower the threshold of it, but it has an impact on it. What does it's that mean? Oh, sorry. sorry. What does that mean? It, it, it has an impact on it. It doesn't lower the threshold of reliability. I mean, doesn't, can we ever sacrifice threshold reliability in a trial no. that? No, I would say no. Okay. Thank so, you. my spirit, uh, sir, so it's not, even if you say that they work uh, in a flexible manner, so in this case, we have necessity. Necessity was considered. So That's when you say it works in a flexible manner and you said that we should never uh, sacrifice uh, the reliability uh, threshold, so to what extent it is flexible? I'm not asking you to give me a precise uh, percentage, but uh, when you say it has to be flexible when necessity is high, so to what extent? Uh, I, I guess the situation is, in this particular instance, you look at the fact um, uh, that the, the, the competing interest between the two principles, which is not having the evidence at all at the trial, and also the, the competing interest of making sure that the integrity of the trial itself is not compromised. Um, in this particular instance where the, without the statement, the evidence basically would be lost. Um, and the court then goes on and they look at the um, criteria of reliability in the sense that, okay, um, we have to make sure that the substantial and the um, uh, uh, procedural uh, aspects of that are, are, are basically met, that there's an evidentiary basis upon which um, uh, we can conclude that any inherent dangers associated with that particular statement um, have been overcome on, on a balance of probabilities with the ultimate reliability being determined at the end of the day Mr. by, by the Mr. court. Mr. Hussey, you've, you've just described a process where the court looks to ensure that there are sufficient indicia of reliability so that the integrity of the trial is not compromised. Can we right. ever admit evidence that would compromise the integrity of the trial? No. Okay, so I'm just wondering how this is helpful to think about, uh, think about reliability in a way to say, well, you can, you can lower it if the evidence is really important when we're all of agreement, it sounds, that there has to be a threshold reliability in order to preserve the integrity of, a, of the trial. Like, uh, why is it helpful to think of it that way? And, and perhaps... It's, it's not in the sense that um, I, in this particular instance, the, the trial judge 
um, basically went through uh, the procedures that had been outlined in Bradshaw and um, came to the conclusion um, that the threshold reliability had been met. Um, and as Justice Knickle pointed out at the end of the day, the statement that where she indicated that she was mindful of the, um, the, the statement where reliability is, or necessity is high, reliability can be relaxed and vice versa. Um, the, the judge, I guess, in, in this particular instance, came to the conclusion that that had no impact on her, uh, on her overall analysis of the admission of the evidence in this, in this particular case. Mr. Hussey, could I, um, if so much, I, I take your exposition of the law uh, as it stands um, uh, and, and your point that you've just made. Have, have you noted that there's so much noise made about the, the um, quotation from the scholarly work in evidence um, that the first judge made? Have you noticed that Paragraph 46, which um, is the focus of debate, the trial judge did not cite Pachaco and Strausser correctly. Unless I'm mistaken, at the end of 46, she says, Pachaco and Strausser, I'm mindful of the final note put forward by Pachaco and Strausser that in situations such as the instant where necessity is high, less reliability is required. And if you go back to paragraph 18, where the full text is cited, it says, similarly, if necessity is high, then reliability may be required. So, the, so, the supposedly objection, objectionable citation wasn't actually even correct to the scholars that were cited, and maybe we've been possibly unfair to them in impugning what they said without really knowing uh, the full import of what they meant. I guess the, the, yes, the, the statement that was taken from uh, the law of evidence um, basically would, would have been the, the older addition. And, um, and again, I would concur, I guess, in, in, your, in your comments, Justice. Uh, with respect, uh, Justices, the majority of the Court of Appeal also went on to indicate at paragraph 15 uh, to state that the underlying statements indicate an uncertainty in the mind of the judge as to whether the threshold, required threshold of reliability would in fact have been cleared if the death of Paul Worrell had not increased the necessity for his statement to be admitted for the proof of the contents. In the use of, for the proof of its contents, the Court of Appeal would appear to be raising the bar of proof required on the threshold reliability to the stage of ultimate reliability. Um, at the stage of threshold reliability, what is being sought out is a, a circumstantial guarantee of trustworthiness. And as the court stated in Kellowan at paragraph 93, common sense dictates that if we can put sufficient truth, uh, trust in the truth and accuracy of the statement, it should be considered by the fact finder. Meeting this test merely brings the evidence into play and something to be factored into the totality of all of the evidence as to its ultimate reliability. 
However, the Court of Appeals focused on the impunged statements resulted in the court not appreciating uh, we would submit the trial judge's reasons as a whole. There was nothing alluded to by the court in the reasons of the trial judge that would support any indicia of uncertainty. As noted in the dissent of Justice Knickel at paragraph 58, the trial judge's explicit statements that the threshold to be met was on the balance of probabilities in the detailed analysis conducted by her of the reliability of the statement contradict that she unduly relaxed the reliability threshold or admitted the statement on the basis of necessity. Justice Knickel in paragraphs 39 to 49 went on to set out the law on the admission of hearsay evidence on a case-by-case -case basis in accordance with the principles of necessity and reliability. At paragraphs 50 to 62, she reviewed the trial judge's decision and correctly concluded that the trial judge was alive to the delicate balancing between the competing fair interests and the need to get at the truth of the matter and the need to admit only reliable evidence to ensure a fair trial for the accused. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, one of the things that uh, you had to be very careful about when you're writing uh, reasons for decision is uh, the use of words that is somewhat imprecise. And in tandem is one of those phrases that was just like a minefield. You know, just you just kind of wander into it and maybe you step on it and it goes boom and maybe you just walk through the field and nothing happens. I mean, it, it, it seems to me when I read the jurisprudence, it, there are two requirements. One is that it has to be sufficiently reliable and, 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 and it has to be sufficiently necessary. And if it's sufficiently reliable and it's sufficiently necessary, then it goes in. And if it's not sufficiently reliable, it shouldn't go in. And if it's not sufficiently necessary, it shouldn't go in either. And, and um, it, it just, I mean, there are two requirements, both of which have to be met and it, it seems to me it's a very contextual, case-specific thing and, and making abstract propositions about their being in tandem maybe isn't all that helpful. I would agree, Justice, in the sense that it is very case-specific. Um, obviously, the reason for the principled uh, exception to the hearsay rule was to avoid trying to pigeonhole um, evidence into a particular category and obviously it was the reason for the test of both sufficiently necess necessary and sufficiently reliable um, that dictates the analysis of the, the factors that go into both um, and in, in this particular instance um, where you know at the end of the day um, the position that the Justice Knickel outlines in her decision is that the comment that the trial judge made came at the conclusion of a very thorough analysis of the, her, um, the evidence insofar as, as uh, in support of the, the criteria of both procedurally and substantively. And at the conclusion of her remarks, um, she, she, she did make the, the, the statement about the, uh, again, the impunge statement that was relied on by the, by the Court of Appeal, by the majority of the Court of Appeal. But under the circumstances, the, um, by parsing out that one particular, uh, I guess, uh, sentence from the rest of the judgment, um, uh, we would adopt the, the uh, position of Justice Knickel in her position that that did not affect the overall analysis 
with respect to the trial judge conclusion that the evidence itself should, should be admitted. So those are the comments of, of the Crown unless the, the court has any, any further questions. No, thank you very much, Mr. Hussey. Um, Mr. Edwards? Good morning. I'm actually going to be relatively brief uh, because I do believe there's a great deal in this case that's not actually in any dispute. We're all well aware of what the principled approach to hearsay is, where we're the case law. What we're coming down to is how this particular judge applied it to this particular case. A great deal of discussion has been had in both of our factors uh, and at the Court of Appeal about paragraph 46 of her judgment, in which she says, I'm mindful of the final note put forward that in situations such as in the instant where necessity is high, less reliability is required. While troublesome, I find paragraph 47 even more disturbing than paragraph 46. Because paragraph 46, and this is what is suggested by, um, glossed over by Justice Knickle with respect, but it's paragraph 47, I believe, where she is actively putting her misinterpretation of the law into action. In paragraph 47, and this is at tab two of the appellant's record, page 15, the bottom of the page, she says, I find that the statement of Paul Worrell does meet the threshold for inherent reliability. Any, and here's the operative line, any deficits are offset by the high degree of necessity. So what the trial judge is doing, number one, she's obviously acknowledging that there must be deficits when she did a reliability analysis. If there were no deficits, why would she say that there, if there were deficits, they'd be offset? And she's saying, she's actually putting into operation the idea that if it's high necessity, it can outweigh low reliability by saying any deficits are offset by the high degree of necessity. Mr. Edwards, let's say that the, the judge would have stopped at paragraph 45 of her reasons. She did a, her analysis of the reliability, and let's say that uh, we have a, a decision, paragraph 1 to 45. Do you think that uh, the court below uh, would have had any basis to uh, intervene? Uh, no, if we, we forget those two paragraphs, after everything she said, and she said um, that on a balance of probabilities, she was uh, of the view that the threshold was met. So, Well, Justice, when you're looking at the reasons of a judge, mm -hmm. unlike a jury, we, we, we don't understand how a jury arrives at its decisions, but a trial judge acting as a trial fact is setting out the path by which she came to her decision and the analysis she's undertook. But Justice Cote's suggestion is that the path ended at paragraph 45. And in fact, if it didn't end there, it certainly ended with the first sentence of paragraph 46, 
um, you have to look at this, you have to take the reasons as a whole. The conclusion is stated in 45, it is restated in 46. What 47, taking that into account, I just want to put this to you and you can, you can answer it because it suggests to me when it says any deficits, it's an alternative. In other words, if I am wrong on this, then I resort to the, the principle that everyone seems to be impugning, except your friend. By, and I understand uh, the question, Justice, but by extension, you could say that of any decision of any judge where there's a, a misstatement of law, if you simply say, if we just remove the wrong statement, is the rest of it okay? And no, 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 that's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the decision has been reached, right? And if... And, and, but if I am wrong about that, then allow me to state this dubious proposition and rely on that. That's, that's different than just saying from the decision that contains itself within it a wrong, a, a wrong principle of law. You just excise that and then we're, we're left with something deficient. But we have, a, we, we have a conclusion. In fact, it begins with the words, in conclusion. And, 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 uh, and then in paragraph 46, I find the statement made to the police is admissible despite being presumptively admissible hearsay. The circumstances around taking the statement support the indicia of necessity and reliability. Then further down, any deficits, right? We've entered a counterfactual world, right? If there are deficits, that's, I mean, you're, 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 you're quite, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that you would highlight that, but I just wonder if, if that really forms part of the decision or whether it was a, whether it was obiter as an alternative argument. And I understand the question. You're saying it's I'm not obiter, it's ubiter. It's really important, right? <laughs> I, uh, I think if, I, I think if, so if paragraph 45 is where the judgment came to an end, that's fine, okay? Because the judge does seem to be following the proper approach. As I've said, there's no real debate about the principled exception, uh, principled approach to hearsay. There's none. However, I would extend it by saying, even if it had gone as far as 46, it'd be less problematic. But for me, paragraph 47 is not obiter, and it's not a throwaway line. Can, can I put it to you this way? Um, when you read her reasons, she goes through and she says it was videotaped, reasonably contemporaneous. She, it was given to the police without hesitation. She considered corroborative evidence. She determined that alternatives to the uh, statement's truth would seem unlikely. And then based on that, she says that contemporaneous cross-examination, this is, um, would, while preferable in any case, would likely not add much to the process of determining the truth of what was said in the statement. Isn't that a classic application of our hearsay um, jurisprudence? It is. And that's, and that's the basis on which she reaches her conclusion. Is, is there, am, am I misreading that? No, I mean, in, in some ways, this is a basically a classic definition of the principled approach to hearsay that you're gonna see in a voir dire decision. And, this comes back to the question about whether if the judgment ended at paragraph 45, we'd be here today. 
There was deference granted the finding of fact she made. She properly stated the test until she didn't. But and that's, that's the problem. I guess I'm not even sure what this means, any deficits or offset. I mean, maybe it could have been, have even more indicia of reliability, but certainly she made note of all of the indicia and reached a conclusion. I, I guess I'm just having difficulty in seeing how if you step back and look at her reasons as a whole, how you can, how, I guess, why is it that we would say her conclusion, she applied the right principles, she reached a conclusion, and she does make a statement about any deficits and so on, but really, does that undermine her finding that there was sufficient uh, reliability in this case? But actually, she did identify some deficits in her decision. Well, there's always some deficits. I mean, it's hearsay, and we're talking about threshold reliability, not ultimate reliability, but... You know, but she did identify some, and I do believe that's why she added that line in, in paragraph 47. It is not a passive line, and it is not a throwaway line. I believe um, that what she was doing was putting into practice the incorrect statement of the law, as she read in that academic text. Um, in, paragra in paragraphs 28 to 38 of my fact, I'm not going to go through that, um, but in paragraphs 28 to 38 of my factums, I do point out some of the deficits. Uh, the right standard, she, she decided this on a balance of probabilities. And of course, when you decide on a balance of probabilities, it's not perfect. It is a balance of probabilities. So probably she was referring to that. And we have to pay difference to uh, her findings of fact on that. So, And we do have to pay deference to her findings of fact on that. And that's the correct approach. However, we also have to take attention, pay attention to the words she used in coming to her conclusion. It's one thing to say... The words she used after she came to her conclusion, because as Justice Brown said in paragraph 45, she begins that paragraph in saying in conclusion. So she reached her conclusion, and after that she had the, what I call the two impugned paragraphs. So the question I would have on a situation like that is, Say, for example, we're not talking about this case. Say we're talking about another case where a judge says partway through the decision, in conclusion, I've reached this decision, but then goes on to state a number of errors of law. Are the errors of law that come after the word in conclusion no longer considered valid, no longer of consequence? Is the use of the word in conclusion, does that terminate the rest of our judgment from review? And I think it should not, that if a judge you, simply using the word in conclusion does not remove the remainder of a judgment from review. Is, is the, I guess one way of looking at it, and I don't, having said I don't like abstract notions, I, I may slip into one, but is there a complete set of reasons when you get to the end of 45? And then, then the, the trial judge kind of does the belt and suspenders thing. In other words, if the bed, belt doesn't hold, I'm going to put on a set of suspenders as well, just in case. And we find out, well, the suspenders aren't really that good, right? But the belt is okay. But because the suspenders were 
completely independent of the belt. I mean, it's only so far you can carry this thing. Uh, the belt is, continues to function. In other words, if, if what you pointed out to us is part of one integrated uh, analysis, I kind of take your point. But if, as was suggested by my colleague, Justice Brown, the analysis was complete, and then she sort of speculated, well, in addition to that, or in the alternative, a, you can, I can apply this reasoning that Pachaco and Stuzer set out in their textbook. And that gets me to the same place. And, and, and we are not persuaded that the proposition set up by those two academics is sound. That knocks down the alternative, but it seems to leave the initial analysis intact, the one that had no regard to Pachaco and Struzer. I don't know if I made it too convoluted. No, no, I, and I understand your question, or your statement, Justice. Number one, belt and suspenders are a crime against fashion, so we're just going to leave that alone. <laughs> but um, I do think it's got to be viewed in the entirety as part of a reasoning process. You just don't put a line in like that as a throwaway. You don't. And I do believe what this speaks to is her reasoning process which went through it, which is what we look for in reasons from a trial judge. They have to be reviewed. And again, I bring it right back, and I know she could be arguing the alternative, but I don't think that's what she's doing here. And really, is a trial judge in the position to be arguing alternatives? Is that her role? She's not a trial lawyer. Trial lawyers, we argue in the alternative all the time. Well, trial judges um, often state alternative bases for their decisions. But alternative bases of the law? Well, that's not what she's doing. She's stating an alternative basis for her decision. It may be a dubious basis, but it's an alternative basis. Well, we would suggest that what she's doing here is by saying that the, her alternative is an alternative interpretation of the law as set forward by these academics. Alternative basis for getting to the decision based on the facts she's heard is one thing. For example, an assessment of credibility, why she believes one witness over another witness. But here, I believe her alternative is this alternative interpretation as put forward as she quotes earlier in the judgment. I, I guess the difficulty I'm having, and it goes back to the list of things that I, you know, she went through to establish threshold reliability. And I'm just having difficulty understanding how that list that she goes through and concludes is sufficient for threshold reliability, why we shouldn't just kind of accept that that is in fact what she did. She says that, why wouldn't we assume that reading her reasons as a whole, that she went through those indicia, those are indicia that would in the normal course satisfy minimum, you know, your threshold reliability. Why should we presume that she was wrong in finding that. She could very well have stated that she correctly applied the law, while at the same time also engaging in this incorrect reasoning. Had she said this at the beginning of her decision, would we be having the same discussion? Simply because it occurs at the end where she's summing up, she says how she came to the conclusion. If she had said that at the beginning, if she had said, say, a paragraph, I don't know, uh, in the mid-30s, you know, 
In assessing his uh, statement for inherent reliability, I find that any deficits are offset by the high degree of necessity. But you say that those, in including those two paragraphs in her reasons, whatever the place, we'll forget about that, uh, she unduly relaxed the reliability threshold. This is your position. You say that in putting that, it shows that uh, she misunderstood how she should do the, uh, she should analyze the reliability threshold because you say it was unduly relaxed because of the high necessity reference. <laughs> so, but when you look at her analysis, whatever the place of the analysis is in the reasons, can you really say that she unduly relaxed that uh, reliability threshold? I think that Justice uh, Canito at paragraph 58 got it right when she says that the fact that she did that analysis contradicts uh, that she unduly relaxed the reliability uh, threshold. Whatever the place uh, we find those two paragraphs in the reasons. Well, uh, Justice, I am mindful of the fact that she did go through that, that test. I mean, there's no denying that. But again, I keep going back to while she might have stated this, what do we make of the fact that she quotes it earlier in her judgment? Um, there are deficits, and then she concludes the conclusion that she reaches. Um, Justice Knickel does not really address whether this statement of law was made. She goes on and says that there's adequacy in her, in her reasons. But I'm more inclined to agree with um, Justice Welsh that she did change it. And this comes back to the tandem discussion you were having uh, with my colleague, is that, so tandem doesn't necessarily mean equal. Tandem in my, and I know I, you can stretch a word out to, to infinity to definitions, but tandem, I view tandem when it comes to the principled exception, uh, principled exception to hearsay, is not necessarily that both are equal, it's they're not both are connected. Yeah, it's not necessarily equal, but your position at it is that tandem means it goes in one direction only. This is what you say. No, uh, that's not really what I'm trying to say. Okay. When we look at why did the hearsay rule exception arise, it's because we did not want to deny important evidence coming into a trial that impacts trial fairness, okay? But the issue we have is, is that how do we test evidence that can't normally be tested through cross-examination normal, normal means? Well, we've got to be sure, number one, of necessity, but that's a relatively minor point, I would suggest, when it comes to, uh, to hearsay. The big issue is reliability. We have to be sure that the evidence that's being put before the court is reliable. And if it's not reliable, that impacts trial fairness. And my colleague talked about wanting to get all the evidence in, but the accused also has the right to a fair trial. And that's where reliability comes in. So that's why I think reliability, and maybe calling it more important than necessity is, is an incorrect word, and it may not be precise enough. But I do think reliability has got to take precedence over necessity. And I believe that's what she's done. And there is flexibility, there has to be flexibility in hearsay. In Canada, based on the decisions of this court, we have taken a flexible approach to dealing with hearsay because hearsay takes many forms and has to be addressed in many ways. And while we've been discussing at great length whether or not 
she intended to say what she said and that impacts her decision. Let's just take, let's just assume for a moment that she did mean this, that what her, what my interpretation of what she said is the correct one, that she did intend to sort of lower reliability in face of high necessity. If you extend that out, that means in any case where necessity is high, the evidence should automatically go in. For example, in every, every statement made by a person who's deceased, that should automatically go in without a review of reliability because the necessity is so high. Well, I think we have not accepted that position in Canada. No. I mean, Wigmore suggested it. We have steadfastly refused it. Accepting then um, what you're saying, as I interpret it and how I actually see the law, which is you can have as much flexibility as you want, but there is a threshold for threshold yes. reliability under which you can't go without undermining the purposes for which we keep out hearsay in the first place, trial fairness, et cetera. But, so I accept, I accept that uh, approach to, to the law, but where, and, and I, I think the word deficits um, may create um, something that needs to be answered here in terms of that paragraph. But when I actually go into the judgment, um, the, 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 the trial judge says at paragraph 25, the issue is, thresh, is, is sufficient reliability. Paragraph 27 talks about sufficient reliability and then goes through and says, look, it's not under oath, it's recorded, right? It's contemporaneous, it is corroborated. It, and so all of the hallmarks of threshold reliability as a threshold, and then she concludes that there's enough here. And so when I look at the deficits, I have a hard time figuring out what those deficits might be once she said, that the, the balance of probabilities is met here. And so what, what's the deficit, that it's not under oath? I mean, th th what would be the deficits that, that would have an impact here in terms of her threshold reliability assessment? Well, there is evidence of animus between the parties having to do with the prior assault that happened on New Year's Eve. So it, it's not an individual who's making a statement related to one single event with a person who he's not previously connected with. There is obviously a lot of bad blood uh, between right. these parties. And, and, and the defense is that this was self-defense based on the bad blood, right? Yes, but he also indicates motive to lie as well. Um, there's also the DNA is not as corroborative as... It's, it's, yeah. It can go either way. Yeah. And even the presence of the weapons in the house can go either way. They're not exactly determinative of anything. Um, so, but again... I'm not going to, like, we, I'm not, my job here is not to parse apart the trial judge's finding of fact when it comes to those things. But it is to point out that there were deficits, and I think that's why she came to the conclusion she did. Ultimately, and again, I know that I keep repeating this point over and over again, when a trial judge, in their decision, no matter where they make it, states the law incorrectly, how do we address that? I mean, stated it perhaps in its simplest way, uh, if, the, if the judge uses the wrong yardstick, isn't that an error which would call for the uh, decision to be made again? And the, the real, I think for me at least, as this, uh, these submissions are proceeding, it, it really comes down to that. 
did the uh, Judge Skeynes use the wrong yardstick when she carried out her um, assessment of, of threshold reliability? And you say yes, because she relied on uh, Pachaco and Stuzer, and your friend, Mr. Hussey, says uh, no, because when you look at what she wrote, at least up to paragraph 45, she didn't depart from the, the proper methodology. She used the correct yardstick. I may be oversimplifying, but that's sort of how I'm understanding things at this moment. I agree. We know through the bulk of her statement, or bulk of her judgment, that she used a yardstick. But my point is, is that she shows us her yardstick in paragraph 47, and is the incorrect one. So I would suggest this is very telling on her, on her thought process when she went through it. It's not enough to simply say that you're doing something correctly. If you can't see the metrics behind it, it can't be reliable. Again, if we, if we had cut this off at paragraph 45, we wouldn't know the mistakes she's made. But what she's done is she's given us her mistake in paragraph 46 and 47. And I would suggest that it is not appropriate for us to ignore that, no matter where it happened. Um, well, in fairness, not all of 46 is, is contaminated. The first couple of sentences look like it, they're bang on. And in fact, she even goes as far as saying contemporaneous cross-examination, while preferable in any case, would not likely add much to the process of determining the truth of what Paul Worrell said in his statement. So it's only that you're, you're, you've picked out, I don't know how many defense counsels on appeal I've heard saying, you've got to read the judgment as a whole, don't pick out one when, when the interest is making the argument on the other side. You've picked out one thing, and I would respectfully say, because she miscited these academics, we're not even sure what she relied upon. So I'm not, uh, I, on, in this particular sentence that you find so objectionable. So I don't know if that, this would be a safe basis for an appellate court to intervene with, with what is, uh, a call that the judge made on the basis of her understanding of the whole of the circumstances relating to reliability. And I acknowledge that uh, it is inappropriate to pick out sentences. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty sure I tried to do it yesterday. Um, but the fact of the matter is that these, and, and like I said, paragraph 46 by itself, not a concern. But it's paragraph 46 combined with the operative words in paragraph 47, that's what brings us here. We're not picking out or parsing out a tiny portion of the judgment. Uh, Justice Rowe yesterday drew the example of what do we do with one objectionable line in an entire judgment. And my colleague pointed out that, well, you have to see the whole context in order to make a determination as to how to approach the judgment. I would suggest here that if this was just a minor line or a throwaway line, you wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. However, here where you have two of them, and they're working together in tangent, and they go directly to the issue at hand in the judgment, which is the assessment of reliability, the overcoming of any deficits to determine that on you know, a balance of threshold or a balance of probabilities, it should be admitted going into the principled exception to hearsay. So this is not simply a line that I'm trying to pick out and, and use it to sort of pull the thread to unravel the entire garment. 
I'm saying this is an operative statement of what the trial judge's approach was. Um, You're a master of metaphor. We've got <laughs> unraveled judgments and belts and suspenders and babies going out with bathwater. It's all helpful. Do you know the problems I'm from? So, uh, so much many I mean, meta Metaphors themselves aren't a bad thing. The problem is when, I mean, they're, they're, they're helpful to illuminate. The problem is when they obscure. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I understand that, but I'm not trying to obscure anything. I'm simply trying to sort of expand what my thought process is on this particular appeal. And if I appear that I'm trying to obscure anything, I apologize. No, I guess what you're saying at its highest is when she states the issue is, is it sufficiently reliable, you're saying she's using the test that she articulates in 46 and 47. It's the wrong test. It's yes. too low. Yes. Got it. Thank you, Justice. So unless the court has any more questions, I think that's my time, and I think those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Any reply, Mr. Edwards? I'm sorry. Mr. Hussey. Sorry, Mr. Hussey. Are you with us, Mr. Hussey? Uh, no, ah, there he is. We, we can't hear you. Yeah, no reply, Justice. Thank you. Thank you. The court will recess. We would ask that counsel remain available for us. Thank you. Well, we'd like to thank counsel very much for their submissions and um, Mr. Edwards, you did the best you could for your client. The court has reached a decision in this case. We are of the view that the appeal should be allowed. The trial judge did not err in admitting the hearsay evidence on the voir dire. However, we would emphasize that the necessity of receiving hearsay evidence is never so great that the principled approach requirement of threshold reliability can be sacrificed. Admitting unreliable hearsay evidence against an accused compromises trial fairness, risks wrongful convictions, and undermines the integrity of the trial process. And citing to Kellawan, uh, paragraphs 47 to 49. This court has recognized that necessity and reliability, making up the principled approach to hearsay evidence, work in tandem. In particular, if the, quote, if the reliability of the evidence is sufficiently established, 
the necessity requirement can be relaxed, uh, citing to Baldry at paragraph 72. Indeed, quote, in the interests of, of seeking the truth, the very high reliability of the statement can render its substantive admission necessary. And that's a cite from Kellowan uh, at paragraph 86, citing uh, UFJ, um, page uh, 764. However, this court has never said that reliability becomes more flexible as necessity increases. While the indicia of reliability required to address specific hearsay concerns may vary with the circumstances of each case, as noted at Kellowan, paragraph 78, threshold reliability must be established in every case as this court affirmed in Bradshaw, the threshold reliability standard always remains high. The statement must be sufficiently reliable to overcome the specific hearsay dangers it presents. And that's at paragraph 32, citing Kellowan at paragraph 49. Indeed, where this court has considered the out-of-court statements of deceased declarants, we have consistently insisted on, quote, circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness, as uh, citing to Smith at pages 937-38, or, quote, a sufficient substitute basis for testing the evidence, citing to Kellowan, paragraph 105. Thus, in all cases, whatever may be the degree of necessity, such evidence must meet the requirement of threshold reliability in order to be admissible. That said, we do not read the trial judge's reasons as based on a relaxed threshold of reliability. Rather, they show that she applied the reliability threshold described by this court in Bradshaw at paragraph 31. She remarked that the statement was video recorded, reasonably contemporaneous with the events, and was given to police without hesitation. That's at paragraphs 28 and 29. She also considered corroborative evidence and determined that the explanations alternative to the statement's truth would be unlikely at paragraph 44. Based on these considerations, she concluded, quote, that, the contemp that contemporaneous cross-examination, while preferable as in any case, would likely not add much to the process of determining the truth of what the declarant said in his statement. That's at paragraph 46. Thus, while, thus, we are satisfied that the trial judge's reasons read as a whole show that she properly applied the law relating to the admission of hearsay evidence and did not relax the minimum threshold of reliability. We agree with the dissent in the Court of Appeal that the references in the final paragraphs of her reasons do not undermine her previous conclusion that threshold reliability was established. For these reasons, we allow the appeal, set aside the order of the Court of Appeal, and restore the conviction. Convictions. Thank you very much.